Hello everyone and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today I'm very happy to share the platform with my very special mystery guest, uh, <laughs> Professor Ali Atai from Zaytuna College. Assalamu alaikum, sir. Wa alaikum salam, brother Paul. How are you? Alhamdulillah, very well. Good to see you. How are you? Alhamdulillah. It's uh, another blessed day. Always good to be on Blogging Theology. <laughs> well, it's great to have you. Uh, for those who don't know, um, uh, Dr. Ali Atai is a scholar of biblical hermeneutics specializing in sacred languages, comparative theology, and comparative literature at Zaytuna College. Now, we're going to review the year 2022 as it draws to a close in the next 24 hours, literally. Uh, particularly, we're going to be focusing on those events in the news that have impacted the Muslim Ummah. And I think it's been a tumultuous year. So much has been going on. So, um, Dr. Uh, Ali Atai, uh, where would you like to begin? Wherever you'd like. We can talk about the uh, the World Cup, maybe. To oh, start. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a biggie. That's probably the biggest. Yeah. But what's, yeah. what's your take on the World Cup? Yeah, I was I was actually um, leaving Medina for Mecca when uh, when Saudi Arabia beat Argentina. Wow. The eventual champion in uh, the group stage. I guess they won two to one. So I remember the the lobby of my hotel exploded with glee, I bet it did. Um, and mm. I was literally in Ihram at, at the time. Uh, so that that was that was interesting. But yeah, the World Cup was so intriguing for so many reasons. Mm. I mean, I heard there were uh, um, hundreds of people who uh, made shahada. Yeah, uh, they were so impressed uh, with Islam and and with Muslims that they felt this irresistible. Uh, urge to become Muslim. Mm, mm. Just imagine the thousands more that went home with a, a deep respect uh, mm. for Islam. I mean, I saw a video of an entire Brazilian family yes. reciting the Shahada. Right? Sure. I saw a, a Mexican fan with a, with a huge sombrero right, <laughs> on, on his back mm. reciting the Shahada. There was actually an American woman whose video went viral. I think she removed it after, but she said that she discovered that women were more respected Yes, Atar, uh, yes. than than women in in, in America. Uh, wow. So the the government of Qatar did a fantastic job. They actually placed like hadith of the Prophet وسلم, uh, on billboards um, in multiple languages, mm. and people were just they were overwhelmed with respect and uh, admiration. Uh, there was a musalla, um, like a prayer hall, in, in every stadium. Um, with a wall made of glass so that non-Muslims outside could actually watch the prayer. Yes. Uh, and people said that they fell in love with the Adhan, the uh, Masajid were totally packed with tourists from all over the world. Wow. Asking questions, listening to lectures, uh, watching the prayer. Uh, the uh, The Palestinian flag uh, was, was everywhere. Mm. You know, people saw you know, true brotherhood of humanity. Uh, people discovered that <laughs> you can have fun without getting drunk, right? Yeah, well, that, that's what that you say. That uh, I mean, we laugh, but that's what I discovered after I became a Muslim because I used, obviously used to drink alcohol as a Christian, mm. and and I thought, well, and, and I live partly in France as well, and you know, everyone seems to drink as part of this social kind of cohesion, the cement that helps people to be jolly and enjoy themselves. And it, well, when I I became Muslim and I stopped drinking. I discovered this amazing thing. Actually, you can have a really good time. You don't need alcohol at all. And I don't miss it at all. I just see it as simply completely separate from me. As like, You just don't need it. And this is something that most people in the West probably can't get their head around. But I can bear witness it's true. You do not need alcohol to have a really good time. And alcohol has lots of bad side effects as well, which we all know about. I'm not going to go into those. So, yeah, yeah. this is amazing. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And pe people were clearly having a great time. But there's something else that the World Cup did, and something mm. uh, really, really interesting and uh, maybe unintended. So, so in America, there are a lot of um, you know liberal Muslims who really support uh, the left uh, mm. and say, well, you know, at least the left tolerates us and they respect us. And I think that 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 Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, uh, through the means of of the World Cup, um, completely exposed the reality of some mm. of these Western liberals. I mean, there were leftists, you know, these woke liberals who who bo boycotted the World Cup because of the, the government of Qatar. You know, they said, you know, no rainbow stuff allowed here, right? Mm. 
And this is their country. I mean, this is their culture. This, these are their values. Mm-hmm. You know, there were liberals that were screaming and shouting and demanding for change in Qatar. Mm-hmm. You know, change. Yeah, I was saying, I spent many of our political leaders in, in, in Britain here in the UK were uh, denouncing Qatar. It was hugely. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Embarrassing and shameful, actually, that... That, because this, it was never actually said explicitly, but the subtext was absolutely clear. Islamic teaching is unacceptable. It must change because we say so. And yet yeah. these are the people who say, we believe in multiculturalism and diversity and respect and tolerance of other religions. Of course yeah. we do. But they don't really. If the religion uh, conforms perfectly with their liberal secular values, then they tolerate it. If it doesn't, they insist it must change. And that was really, you know, it's really in your face, big time. Uh, yeah, yeah that's what I was saying. I was like, what happened to respect all cultures and diversity and tolerance exactly. and coexistence? No no so this is you're right about the the, the liberal, the left in in the states uh, and everywhere. I think that um, this really exposed their hypocrisy. They claim to be tolerant and diverse and inclusive, but they're not. Uh, as soon yeah. as you disagree with any of their liberal secular principles, then you're you, you are ridiculed and and told, uh, criticized and condemned. Right. Extraordinary hypocrisy. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, these were Western supremacists. I mean, that's yes, that's the only way I can put it. Cultural colonizers who yep. who claim to celebrate diversity as long as people agree with them, right? That, that's the caveat, yeah. right? You can have diversity, yeah. Yeah. I guess, of of race, but you can't have diversity of of thought maybe that's that's the thinking process i don't know but did you see what the german team did so they, they covered their mouths <laughs> in solidarity with the, with the rainbow people it, it, when i saw that i just did a face palm you know germany really i mean does germany really have some sort of moral high ground uh you know yeah. based on what they did now some people might say well this you know that's that's ancient history 70 80 years ago it's really not. I mean, the, the sins of Germany from 80 years ago are still visiting the Palestinian well, there, people. There was a woman who, who was literally uh, convicted a few days ago in a German court for being a, a concentration camp guard in a Nazi concentration camp. And oh, she was convicted for being complicit in the killing of Goddard's hand thousands right. of Jews. You can Google it. I mean, it was on the news. So yeah. people who still committed these crimes are still being convicted in Germany yeah. today. Yeah, in Germany, Germany to this day, they pay a billion dollars of reparations to uh, so-called Israel because they admit that it's not ancient history. I think Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad, um, he said he said it quite eloquently, um, and I'm paraphrasing. He said something like, the Palestinian people have been slaughtered on the altar of Zionism for the sins of Europe. Yeah. Right? This type of vicarious atonement. I guess Paul of Tarsus would be proud of that. Um, same, same, uh, Apostle Paul, uh, according to Christians. I mean, before we, before we move, I, I'd like to move on to what's going on in Israel at the moment. It's quite yeah. shocking, the recent news. But I just wanted to, um, there's an interesting bit in the, the Times newspaper, the Times of London, uh, on what was expected, in inverted commas, to be written on the World Cup at Qatar. And there's an article in the Times, uh, and I want to read it. It's just very short. Um, and the journalist says this. Uh, who, who was in Qatar, this is a Times journalist. At one match, I sat beside a fellow journalist, not a Times or Sunday Times colleague, he says, uh, another major national newspaper, and we fell into a, what's it been like for you conversation? Uh, 
He was enjoying the World Cup and there was no dissension from me on that point. The football had been great and logistically it had been off the scale easy. Same bed for five weeks, no flights, no long car journeys, good organization, impressive stadiums. Some of this stuff he would like to have reported on for his newspaper and he, he lamented that he could not. More than once, he'd been told by somebody on the desk in London, in other words, the editorial HQ, that good stories about the World Cup were not wanted. <laughs> Freedom of the press, eh? So this is why some of a lot of the bad publicity is simply, well, we've been manipulated. We've been told to believe bad things by people who refuse to give the really good news, which was, you know, excellent organization, impressive stadiums. Journalists loved it. Women loved it. They weren't molested by drunken English football fans uh, and so on. So um, I was absolutely shocking, uh, generally shocked when I read that. Um, that's what's really going on behind the scenes. Yeah. I mean, if you think about the propaganda campaign over the last 20 years, to justify violence in the Middle East. You know, you have to keep millions of people sort of ignorant of the true teachings of this religion, right? So mm -hmm. for a lot of people, this was, for a lot of Westerners, millions of Westerners, this was really their first sort of peek at, at real Islam, at just normal normative Islam and just Muslims being Muslims. Mm -hmm. And you know, the powers that be, they consider that to be, um, you know, it's, it's very powerful and it is very powerful. That's why they don't show like the, the Hajj, I mean, the, the Hajj is a global event every year. How many times do we see it on the news? I mean, literally billions of people from every country in the world are converging upon, you know, Mecca and Medina, and they don't show it because I think they know, you know, it's, it's bad optics for them. Right? Yeah, and the, B the BBC refused to show the opening ceremony on mm. television. Uh, mm -hmm. Because um, you know it, it, it just didn't like it. It always shows the opening scenes at these World Cup events, but this time it didn't. Uh, in a kind of a proto extraordinary censorship and sort of patronising arrogance, there uh, mm -hmm. I was uh, quite disgusted. But coming back to the, the Middle East, I think perhaps mm -hmm. we could go on to what's going on in Israel and um, Netanyahu's hardline new government, which has just taken office yeah. in Israel. And the BBC, back to the BBC again, reported. Uh, that, quote, the most religious and hardline government in Israel's history has mm -hmm. been sworn in. And The Guardian reported today, Benjamin Netanyahu's incoming hardline government put West Bank settlement expansion at the top of its list yeah. of priorities. I mean, this is a priority for a country occupying <laughs> other people on Wednesday, vowing to legalize dozens of illegally built outposts and annex the occupied territory as part of its coalition deal with its ultra-nationalist uh, allies, end quote. And uh, it's interesting, even the, the I noticed um, the Italian, uh, sorry, the Israeli ambassador to France, of all places, uh, has just resigned, believe it or not, in protest at Nehemiah's new government, which, quotes, goes against her conscience. So even some, mm. some of these people have a conscience. Uh, yeah. and, uh, yeah. extraordinary, but she, she's resigned. Let's see if anyone else will will do the same so what are yeah. you doing? yeah i think um it seems like netanyahu um, attempted to do some damage control maybe after the uh the world cup because of the the support for palestine i mean he did this so-called interview with um jordan peterson uh, uh, that was one of the most embarrassing things i couldn't bear to watch that i haven't watched i couldn't bear to watch it i i heard mm. so many bad things i mean did you see it yeah, it, it was it was very hard to watch. There's a Palestinian academic, Dr. Ghada uh, Karmi, um, who said it best. I mean, she said basically that that Peterson is either some sort of sycophant um, of the lowest order or a monumentally ignorant person. Mm -hmm. She just kind of sat there and um, entertained these delusions of this, uh, you know, Zionist apologist and this radical historical revisionist Netanyahu. I mean, um, you know, this idea. This, this fairy tale that that pre-1948 Palestine was a, a barren land, right, uh, containing a few uncultured uh, people. This is pure mythology. You know, this is this is on par with like Jack and the Beanstalk and the legend of the gingerbread man. And I mean, this is how this is how genocide is swept under the rug. Mm -hmm. In 1948, I mean, again, this is not ancient history, right? I mean, people can look at archival footage of pre-1948 Palestine and see for themselves. 
mm. you know, thriving, vibrant Palestinian cities and towns, Muslims, Christians, and Jews living together, working together, uh, practicing their faith, practicing, you know, their culture. Uh, you know, the Muslims didn't expel the Jews. I mean, that's what England, France, Austria, and Germany did. Mm. Um, I recommend, I actually recommend a book, um, by Elon Pape. It's, it's an older book. Oh, yes. Uh, the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. He's actually yeah. in Israeli. I won't grab it for my life. I do have it. Yeah, it's, it's a good book. It's extraordinary. It's yeah. he documented his story. I think he's now in in, in England. He's a professor here. Yeah, and he describes something called Plan Dalit. People should know about this. Plan D, Plan Dalit, nineteen forty eight. You know the Israeli army going village to village, uh, expelling, seizing, uh, killing uh, men, women, and children. You know the massacre of Deir Yassin. You know hundreds of Palestinian villages destroyed. He says 531 to be exact. So, so here's a question, you know, why was Plan Dalit necessary if it was just a barren land? You know, mm -hmm. you know what happened to thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal? I mean, this is clearly not Judaism. Um, and the other thing about Netanyahu that's interesting is that uh, a few years ago, he said something that's possibly even more ludicrous. I don't know if people remember this, but there, there, was, a, uh, there was a photograph uh, taken in 1941 of Hitler meeting with the Grand Mufti of Palestine, mm -hmm. which was normal, two heads of state or political figures meeting. This was before the war, right? Lest we forget that, you know, FDR and Churchill met with Stalin, right? Mm -hmm. So Netanyahu suggested uh, that Hitler only wanted to exile the Jews from Germany, but it was Haj Aminat Husseini, the, the Grand Mufti of Palestine, uh, who suggested the final solution to him. Uh, in other words, Netanyahu blamed the Palestinians for the Holocaust. Mm. I mean, that's what you call chutzpah, right? Mm. I mean, yeah. Forget the fact that the Germans, you know, they published a full record of that meeting, uh, and the recording totally falsifies Netanyahu's, you know, delusion. Yeah. Fact, so that kind of narrative will play in the West for many people because they don't know any better. They're they're, they're you know yeah. manipulated or brainwashed by the, the media, as we've seen, who report refuse to report on certain stories because it doesn't fit in with their narrative. So the, this will ha have some traction in the West, but obviously not in in the Muslim world or anywhere else for that matter, or China. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Norman Finkelstein, who's who's a Jewish professor, his parents were at uh, Auschwitz. Yeah. He called this claim beyond lunacy. Mm -hmm. You know. You know, I, I, I wish, you know, Dr. Peterson the best, you know, is he, is he someone who's really seeking to learn? I don't know. It doesn't seem like it, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of God, I don't know. Well, on that, I mean, connected with that, uh, this year we, with the, uh, the Abraham Accords, I mean, we've seen the, the alleged so-called normalization of relations with, uh, between Israel and the, the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain and Morocco and Sudan, uh, other countries said they might, but they haven't join this and others have kind of pulled back um, uh, from this. But um, what are your thoughts about this? I know it's interesting that I find it interesting the very name, the Abraham Accords. So Abraham, of course, was a, a prophet, uh, not, not a Jewish prophet because he wasn't a Jew. The, the Israel didn't exist. Um, but um, wh wh why, why are they chosen this name and what's going on, do you think, religiously? Yeah, this is a, this is a strange thing. Um, yeah, so they're, they're trying to create this this new world religion, right? Very powerful people in the world, seemingly powerful, by combining basically all three Abrahamic religions. Right? There's a major movement right now, um, and they're apparently going to call this religion Abrahamia, um, an amalgamation of the sort of core principles of Judaism and Christianity and Islam. So it's a, it's a syncretistic uh, religion. I think there was a, there was a Mughal king in India um, who tried to do something yes. similar to this in the 16th century? Some yeah, exactly. His name, but yeah, there was. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think he called it Dean Ilahi. I think his name was Akbar, King Akbar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It failed miserably, right? <laughs> but there are Muslims who think this is actually a good idea, which kind of boggles the mind, right? Oh. I mean, how is this even going to work? I mean, is the Trinity going to be valid or not? I mean, who who is Jesus? Peace be upon him. In this in this religion, is he? <laughs> Is, is he a prophet? Is he, is he God? Uh, is he nothing? You know, which part of the which parts of the Quran are they going to accept, and which parts are they going to uh, reject? Which parts need to be radically interpreted, reinterpreted? Um, you know, it's 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 very very strange. But there's there's a there's an organization in Israel called the Temple Institute, right? And um, I was on their site. It's TempleInstitute.org, and one of the FAQs I thought was really interesting. 
Um, so one of the FAQs is when will the reconstruction of the Holy Temple commence? Go ahead. The third temple. Uh, and here's what they said. And this is a quote. They said, geopolitically, the Temple Mount has to be cleared of the Dome of the Rock and the mosques, which are presently located upon it, before the physical rebuilding of the Holy Temple can begin. Many scenarios can be imagined which would accomplish this. The most, the most promising and not necessarily the most far-fetched would entail Muslim recognition of the Mount as the intended location for the rebuilt temple. Uh, with the acquiescence of the Muslim world, the Muslim structures currently on the Mount would be disassembled and reassembled elsewhere. Traditionally, this is their claim, I'm still quoting, traditionally Muslim texts beginning with the Quran accept the prophecies of the return of the Jewish nation and the rebuilding of the holy temple. <laughs> okay, it continues. Today, of course, radical Islam holds sway over the Muslim world. And until this phenomenon is defeated, the likelihood of a peaceful preparation for the rebuilding of the holy temple remains nil, end quote. So in, in other words, uh, Muslims who don't agree with our eschatology are radicals yeah. and must be defeated, right? Muslims who don't agree with our plan of disassembling, right? Masjid al-Aqsa, Masjid Quba al-Sahra. These are radicals who must be defeated, right? But, you know, the big question to me is, you know, how are they going to get Muslims to willingly recognize their temple uh, and eventually their, their, their Messiah? Um, I don't know. Well, maybe it's perhaps, you know, part of the rationale behind creating this new sort of syncretistic Abrahamic religion in the singular under the guise of sort of unity and tolerance is to convince Muslims uh, who have already embraced this new religion that this coming sort of false messiah will also be their messiah. So this mm -hmm. new temple will be their, their temple, uh, mm -hmm. but really it isn't. So I don't know, it's, it's, very, it's very strange things happening, you know, very... Uh, very strange. I, I saw um, the news recently that um, about five or six red heifers um, have been shipped from Texas, I think, from your country, yeah. <laughs> States, um, to Jerusalem. Um, uh, why? Because uh, allegedly this is in the Torah and they're going to be needed for uh, sacrifice in the temple when it's rebuilt, uh, mm. presumably sometime soon, because you've got these animals that are not going to be living for like decades and decades. But um, um, I saw that. I mean, what's your take on that? These red heifers being prized and, and shipped over and you know looked after for the new temple sacrifices. If, if things like that are really interesting to me, um, there are some very interesting developments uh, happening right now in the sort of topic mm. of messianism, which is one of my favorite uh, topics. Yeah. So right, right now in, in Palestine, so-called Israel, there are there is a lot of messianic fervor mm. uh, in the air. Yeah. Um, I've I've heard that there are even rabbis who are apparently claiming that their long-awaited King Messiah has arrived or will arrive imminently. Yeah. Um, Israel's uh, uh, leading rabbi, Rabbi Chaim uh, Kavieski, who actually uh, died in March of this year. 800,000 people attended his funeral, highly, highly respected. He was reported to have said on multiple occasions that the Messiah is already here really? and that he was holding secret counsel with him. I mean, God knows what's actually you know, going on. Maybe this is you know, fake news. Maybe this is um, red herring or, or some sort of uh, misdirection. Allah, mm -hmm. you know, the history of pseudo-Messiahs in Jewish history is a really interesting topic. It's very long, yeah. And there was other the Messiah in, is it, who died in New York, wasn't there? I forget his name, but uh, he was yeah. uh, still called Nassim Mendel Schneerson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have pictures. He was a Chabad uh, rabbi. Um, they actually put his pictures up in New York in the yeah. caption that says the Messiah uh, yeah. is here. Yeah, there was a Messianic claimant in the 17th century in Turkey, Shabtai Sfi, who actually convinced mm -hmm. Jews from all around the world uh, that he was the Messiah, and he actually ended up converting to Islam. Yeah, uh, so, so as Muslims, we know that whoever, you know, this person is, if he exists, he's not the Messiah in reality. We know that uh, Isa ibn Maryam, alayhi salam, Jesus, the son of Mary, is the Messiah, and he's the only Messiah. Yeah. And, and I believe in, you know, and we believe in the second coming of, of, of Jesus, peace be upon him. Uh, but this whole um, biblical notion of a coming Davidic king Messiah who will rule the world at the end of time, in my opinion, I think this is a result of a misreading of the Tanakh and uh, a, a whole lot of wishful thinking. So the prophecies 
and descriptions of in the Tanakh of a Davidic king during the Assyrian period, I think were clearly fulfilled by Hezekiah. They mm. seem to be describing him, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11. Yep. The second set of prophecies during the Babylonian and Persian periods of a Davidic king who would rebuild the second temple. I believe those things were written by Israelite scribes mm. who hoped that such a person would manifest uh, and free them. Uh, mm. uh, but it seems that God himself exposed these statements as being fabrications because God chose Cyrus, a Persian king, mm. and it was his edicts that led to the rebuilding of the uh, second temple. And I think the lesson here is that God does what he wills and no one can dictate to God. Mm. Uh, the rabbis then claimed, uh, because they had to, I mean, they had to do, they had to say face, um, that these descriptions during the Babylonian and Persian periods uh, were actually describing a third temple uh, towards the end of time, um, and that this Davidic king is yet to come, right? Mm. Uh, so eventually, I think they will at least try to self-fulfill, you know, this this uh, belief right. of uh, of course, there is an organization in so-called Israel, I mentioned this earlier, the Temple Institute uh, of Jerusalem, uh, which is called Makan HaMekdash uh, in, in Hebrew. And, and they actually have the blueprints done for the third temple. Wow. Um, they have the menorah already made, the, um, the priestly vestments, wow. made, the stone altar is made, the incense altar is made, the breastplate of the Kohen Gadol, like the high priest. Uh, Several other items. All these items are actually on display, um, and they're described in a lot of detail in the Pentateuch. In, in the yeah, in the, in yeah, the yeah. They're um, in the Temple Institute Museum, and these are not. They they actually specify these are not models or replicas. They said wow. these items are fit and ready for use in the service of the temple. Um, and I even heard that some of the Kohanim they actually have some Aaronite priests who are ready uh, to move these things into the third temple. I mean, they're ready to rock and roll. You know, Sheikh Mohammed uh, uh, Hussein, who is the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, uh, he's been saying that, uh, you know, underground sort of archaeological excavations are causing noticeable cracks mm. in the columns of the uh, Masjid al-Aqsa, mm. right? Uh, so who knows? Maybe the plan is a sort of an accidental collapse uh, of the mosque and then quickly move the third temple into place. Allahu um, musta'an. But also, you mentioned the red heifers. Mm. Uh, from the templeinstitute.org. This is what they say. They say, on Thursday, September 15th, 2022, 5 p.m., five perfect unblemished red heifers arrived in Israel from the USA, you know, Texas. A, a, a modest ceremony was held at the unloading bay of the cargo terminal at Ben Gurion Airport, where the new arrivals were greeted and speeches were made by the incredible people who have put their hearts and souls and means into making this historic slash prophetic day become a reality, end quote. So five blemish-free, one-year-old uh, heifers, that is female cows, have recently arrived in Israel. Mm. So blemish-free means um, totally red, not a single black or white hair, mm. and having never been yoked before. So what is the significance of the blemish-free red heifer? Uh, the the, the, uh, the blemish-free red heifer, by the way, is the namesake of the second Surah of the Quran, actually, Al-Baqarah, yeah. and a perfect uh, cow that has no faults, Baqarah, mm. a uh, heifer. So according to Jewish belief, there have been nine uh, previous perfect red heifers sacrificed in Jewish history, and the last one was sacrificed about 2,000 years ago. Uh, but then, as we know, the temple was destroyed uh, by the Romans in 70, the Common Era, um, so according to Leviticus, the water that the Kohanim, the priests of the temple use uh, for the temple rituals, this, this water must be purified by the ashes of a two-year-old blemish-free red heifer, right? Uh, and the ashes of one heifer can last for hundreds of years. So there are currently five of them. They're all one year old. If one of them makes it to two years old and is still perfect, uh, then the 10th red heifer in their history will be sacrificed presumably by their Messiah. I mean, this is their hope. And then after that, the temple and priesthood can be reestablished. And I think they'll push hard to do that. Allahu alam, I'm not saying this is going to happen, or but this is what they're mm -hmm. hoping for. I mean, we should be you know, spiritually prepared for things like this. I mean, is the world really prepared for this? It's all very nice having, you know, these red heifers and fantasies about the 
the reestablishment, the rebuilding of the you know the third temple. But if you have the rest of the Torah as well, I mean, you you have, I mean, th there are a few offenses and just a very very few in Islam which are capital offenses. Um, but in, if you look at the Torah, there's lots and lots of offenses which carry the death penalty uh, explicitly, not just by stoning, but by being burnt to death, you know, yeah. literally being burnt to death. If you're a witch, if you're an adulterer, if you're homosexual, if you're a blasphemer, if you apostatize from Judaism, uh, these are all death penalty offenses. Now, are we looking at the restoration of the whole legal system of the Torah? Because romantic, you know, romantic feelings about the temple and heifers is all very nice. But if yeah. you're going to have a whole system consistently, which you should do, because you're restoring the, 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 the state of Israel as it used to be, not the current one. Um, then is the world, is, is Israel ready? Is America ready to see these mass executions and burnings of witches and apostates and adulterers yeah. and homosexuals? I don't think so, somehow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, some of the Orthodox hold this belief that when the Messiah comes, he's going to reinstate all of these mitzvot because something like half of the 613 have really no application in the world right now, according to them, because exactly. so, much, so much of it is, is predicated upon the existence of the temple and the kohanim, uh, the right. sacrifices, and the Sanhedrin, um, the religious Sanhedrin, which is, which is not there. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it seems like, um, and this is a good argument for, from, from us, um, that, you know, Nusch is a reality, like abrogation of certain commandments is just a reality. I mean, for the vast majority of mm -hmm. Israel's history, um, almost half of their mitzvot have no application whatsoever. This is a good sort of circumstantial, good circumstantial evidence, uh, that there's going to be uh, another law code revealed after the Torah mm -hmm. that is more universal. Uh, you know, uh, but yeah, some of the some of the Orthodox hold that when the Messiah comes, all of these things are going to be reinstituted. And of course, as Muslims, we have a belief in an imposter Messiah, right? Yeah. Uh, and and this is a really important part of our uh, eschatology. You know, Al Masih al Dajjal, which literally means the imposter Messiah. Mm -hmm. um, and this is all over our Hadith uh, corpus, and there's no denying this. Uh, and we're told in the hadith uh, that the Prophet the Prophet himself, uh, peace be upon him, uh, would seek refuge from the imposter uh, Messiah. Um, mm. And he's, you know, he's obviously teaching us uh, by example. But th there's another hadith in Musnad Ahmad. And there's, there's some weakness in the chain, but our scholars quote it extensively. I mean, the meaning is obviously true even if it's weak, uh, where the prophet is reported to have said that the Dajjal, the imposter Messiah, will not actually appear until the people become negligent in talking about him and until the preachers on the pulpit stop mentioning him, right? So when, when the preachers stop mentioning the Dajjal in their khutbahs, this is when the imposter Messiah will emerge. And That's so, ironic because you, you, yeah. you preached on this subject recently. I saw the, the video, a fascinating video, but you were lamenting that indeed precisely what you were saying has now taken place, that people are no longer preaching on this. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought about this for a while and, you know, why would Muslim speakers stop talking about the imposter Messiah? So I came up with two possible reasons. I mean, Allahu alam, I don't know, I'm just speculating, uh, but it seems to me that, that one reason uh, seems to be obliviousness to the culture of the Dajjal, uh, mm -hmm. that there will come a time when we are so inundated uh, by the sort of Dajjalic zeitgeist uh, that we just think it's normal. This is just, you know, it's life as usual. We, we don't think to even imagine that we're surrounded by the culture of the imposter Messiah. You know, it's like a, it's like a fish uh, who's born in a fish tank and then is asked by another fish, how's the fish tank? And he says, what fish tank? Mm -hmm. a fish tank? You know, in other words, yeah, you know, pornography is everywhere. This is just normal. You know, uh, you know, advanced technology becomes the summit of achievement. You know, gluttony and greed, hedonism, all these things are sort of normalized. Entertainment is normalized. People waste time. Men and women, you know, stop acting like men and women. You know, there's gender confusion. Just another day, totally normal. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the second thing that occurred to me is is just censorship. Mm. Uh, in other words, the reason why speakers will stop mentioning the imposter Messiah uh, is because they'll be censored yes. and silenced. 
I mean, it once happened to me. I mean, I, I once gave a chutbah oh, really? on the cross for Messiah, and it was suddenly removed. And I thought to myself, how ironic, right? I mean, <laughs> imagine a Muslim comes to me and says, why is it that you khatibs never talk about the Dajjal and your khutbahs? And I say, well, I did, but it was yeah. sad, you know, thus giving the impression that, you know, I didn't say, uh, I didn't say anything. Of course, it's in some countries, the censorship is far more serious, like in France, where you can literally be expelled from the country, as happened to uh, an imam not in, in a number of months ago, who uh, was literally kicked out of France for just to, to, just um, reciting the Quran when it talked about the different gender roles that, that men and women have. And this was seen as violating the secular norms of the Republic. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, you know, there's, there's a really, really... I mean, all, the, all of these hadith are just, they're, they're just amazing. But mm. there's a hadith in the, in the Sunan of Abu Dawood with the Prophet Wasallam. He says, he says, and he, you know, he warned us about these things. We should take these things very seriously. He said, let him who hears about the imposter Messiah keep a distance. For I swear by Allah that a man will come to him thinking he's a firm believer and then end up following him because of confused ideas or heretical matters, shubuhat, roused in him by the uh, imposter messiah so the imposter messiah not just the you know actual physical person uh, but this the whole culture the system the zeitgeist uh, of the dajjal raises these shubuhat in the religion in, in the deen in other words people who identify as muslim will eventually leave islam and, and follow this imposter messiah mm -hmm. because the imposter messiah will confuse them and cause them to to doubt their religion you know so you know, the, he's going to, you know, criticize and raise suspicions about normative, traditional, prophetic Islam. He's trying to redefine Islam, you know, and we know that if, if words lose their definitions, then, you know, they can mean whatever uh, we want. And this is happening now. There's a clear assault on language, right? Mm -hmm. Today, there are people who identify as Muslim, uh, but oppose things that are like axiomatically undeniably self-evidently known to be part of the religion right so for example they think there's nothing wrong with being muslim and living you know homosexual lifestyle or transgender lifestyle or mm. being being pro-abortion uh, pro or, or believing in critical race theory things like this um, or, or believing that the quran is not actually the words of god but they're sort of the inspired words of the prophet uh, or that the sharia like salah and zakah these things are optional um, or you could be like a you know a moderate uh, alcohol drinker as a Muslim. Uh, you can sort of combine religions. Like I said one time, uh, I mentioned this in, in the chuppah recently as well. I was at the UC Berkeley campus, and I, I met a brother who said he was a Buddhist Muslim. <laughs> What's a Buddhist Muslim? A, a Moodist? Uh, I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, I believe in reincarnation. You know, I, I believe in some of the Quran and some of it's correct, but I also believe. It's, it's just very strange, you know, it's like well, 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 one could say as an outsider. Well, this is California, isn't it? Really? And um, what do we expect in California? <laughs> yeah, you sort of have to you have to hunt around around here to actually find a like a traditional Christian yeah. you know, to have a good uh, uh, conversation with. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's a there's a very prominent Muslim uh, feminist professor who teaches in colleges and universities. And she teaches that if the Quran you know, says something that you don't like, Something that hurts your feelings, you just say no to Allah. This is what she says. Right? Is that what just she said? No. You're kidding, like, really? This is this is sort of her her method of dealing with these with these verses that are. You know, I understand the basic point. What the word Islam actually means itself. <laughs> Islam means submission. It doesn't mean saying no to God. It means submitting to God. Uh, it seems no. like a very basic point principle missing from what you just said. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's very strange. You know, it's um. <laughs> wow. you know, I also mentioned this when I, when I was a kid. You know, I had non-Muslim uh, teachers who would tell me that if anyone ever offered me drugs, I should just say no, right? And nowadays we have so-called Muslim professors telling Muslims, just say no to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? And these, th you know, these things are addressed in the Quran, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, he says in the Quran, he says, He says, those who are, uh, those who are anchored in knowledge, uh, they say we believe in it, meaning the Quran. All of it is from God. That's right. right? So yeah, that's I think a major problem is that you know just a lot of Muslims in the West are, are just so confused. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, apparently these are very confusing times. Even though I would argue that our religion is very clear, our mm -hmm. beliefs are clear. This is not complicated. You know, 
we we confuse ourselves it seems like mm-hmm. you know the quran is called kitab mubin which means a clarifying book the prophet وسلم, in the quran is called al-bayyina which means a clear evidence he said what that which is licit and illicit is is clear right but it seems like this you know sort of anti-christic uh, culture uh, this sort of anti-theistic uh, zeitgeist has introduced these shubuhat right these these heresies that are causing people to really have serious doubts about traditional Islam, uh, mm. normative uh, Islam. You know, people in America become very, very uh, um, polarized. You know, which is not a not a good sign, right? Um, no, well, it's, it's extraordinary what's going on in your your country at the moment. Yeah, yeah, it's um, you know, you have you have uh, sort of uh, you know the the ultra MAGA people on one side, and you have these sort of uh, extra woke liberals on the other side so you have one you have one group basically saying no more mosques in america then you have the other group saying more gay mosques in america yeah. you know and i tell muslims that you know neither group is our ally right, right. i mean there, there there are many muslims who feel like they need to sort of choose sides mm-hmm. we just don't fit in with either group we're misfits and that's okay it's actually a good thing right you know the, yeah. The, yeah. the prophet said that you know, this religion began as something gharib, something strange, mm-hmm. and it's going to return to something strange. So, so fatuba lil ghuraba, so glad tidings, you know, uh, to the strangers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we, we apparently are, are very strange to people, um, to, to, to modern people, people that are sort of steeped in this postmodern culture. You know, we believe in tra- traditional values, traditional, you know, morality. We believe that God, you know, acts in the world. We don't drink. We don't fornicate. We mm-hmm. fast for a month. These are very strange for people nowadays, you know. And, mm-hmm. I, and I tell people that's 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 good. This is this is glad tidings from uh, from the prophet himself. Yeah. Mm. Uh, kind of on the, on that one of the good news stories I think of, of yeah. for me anyway of twenty twenty two um, was the, the the census. This is the census of the population in the UK anyway uh, that was published just about several weeks ago. And, and it showed uh, very sadly, and I'm generally not happy, that there has been a very continuing steep decline of Christian practice and identity in Britain. I say I'm generally not happy because the alternative is simply yeah. nothing. It's consumerism, materialism, nihilism, wokeism. Um, but the big exception story to, to this was uh, the, the continuing solidity and uh, popular popularity of the Muslim communities, that they are passing on their faith. The parents are passing on to their children, and often the children are more religious than their parents. I mean, this is so counter to what should be happening um, with religion, certainly with Christianity anyway, where you see, you know, uh, I, I spoke to... Uh, uh, a professor from King's College who's an expert sociologist uh, on this uh, mm-hmm. in the UK. And, um, you know, fascinating stuff she, she was saying. So um, Muslims, there are some really good news stories, I think, that Muslims are holding on to their faith, uh, that they're not diluting it, it mostly, you know, overwhelmingly they're not, and, and it's being passed on and their children are not getting, you know, bit by bit less and then their children are getting less religious. And on the contrary, there seems to be a revitalization of the faith. Um, yeah. That's amazing. Uh, good news story of 2022, I think. Yeah, no, I, I, I saw that as well. Uh, you know, this this increase in people becoming nuns, not Catholic nuns, but N-O-N-E-S, right? <laughs> they don't want to affiliate with any type of, of religion yes. whatsoever. Yes. Um, yes. You know, it's just, you know, it's uh, we, we have, you know, Muslims tend to have very strong foundational uh, roots, right, uh, mm-hmm. in, in religion. And um uh, those things are, you know, once they're ingrained, they're very, they're very, very hard to, to pull out of a person's being. Um, and and Islam is a religion where, you know, you, there's th- there are certain things we have to do physically with our bodies. Yeah, you know, we have to pray five times a day. Uh, yeah. So when when the youth see that, that's why it's so important for for parents to be to practice what they preach, because they can they can talk all day long and they can pontificate and and uh, and you know. Uh, you know, until the cows come home, until the red heifers come home, apparently. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. but if, if they're not actually practicing the religion, you know, the youth may not say anything to their parents because they don't want to disrespect them, but they notice that. They notice that hypocrisy. Mm. But if they're actually practicing, you know, and they, they start from a young age, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's almost like writing in stone, 
you know. It is. I mean, I, I've been to lots of churches, obviously, when I was a Christian as well. And I, I can say, compare and contrast the, 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 the attendance at places of worship, comparing church from mosque in the UK, then there's, no, there's no comparison. I mean, today I went to, you know, Juma Mosque. It was totally packed um, and mostly younger people uh, uh, as well. And that's typical. It's not some exception. Whereas most Christian churches in the UK, unfortunately, uh, it's much more serious here, perhaps in America, um, are, are empty. You might get um, a scattering of uh, old people, bless them, uh, but that's it. Uh, whereas the norm has always been, I've never been to a mosque, it's not heave, you know, it's not bursting at the seams trying to accommodate everyone. Um, and you, know, you just can't move, the Muslims everywhere. <laughs> and they're all taking their religion really seriously. And um, alhamdulillah, that's an amazing thing yeah. to see, uh, to be honest. And yeah. the contrast, it's difficult to overstate the contrast. It is dramatically different. Christian practice and Muslim practice, in the, even in the UK, is very different. Yeah, no, even like... Um interfaith dialogues nowadays i mean the, the youth and churches they're, they're not sure i mean just my experience i mean it's it's anecdotal uh you know make of it what you want but you know i i do a lot of interfaith dialogues in churches and i rarely see youth in these churches it's just a bunch of old people this is america where, where the religion is more vital yeah. perhaps yeah. it's very strange i'm just i'm just talking wow. to older folks like my parents generation these are people who attend these events um so you know, I guess if there isn't, you know, like music and, you know, some of these churches you go, it's like a rock concert, right? Yes. You know, yes. You, know, you have but, a mosque. But why is it like, a, you see this, particularly in America, these mega churches, and you have, we have them here, but less so, but you know, have guitars, rock bands, singers, a whole choir. It's like a rock concert. And you wonder why, oh, it's to bring the young people in, of course. But yeah. in Islam, there is no music at all in mosques. I mean, if there were, there'd be an outcry. It's, no, it's literally nothing like that at all. Um, and again, extreme uh, difference. But they're not holding on to the young people, are they, in the churches, even when they have the rock concerts going on? Yeah, yeah that's that's true. Yeah, part of the and and no, you're right. The Muslim youth are holding on to their dean. But um, I, I've noticed also um, when you know they they go to high school or college, there there is a bit of mm. uh, you know there there is a difficulty that they definitely right. experience of course, uh, yeah. navigating uh, those those spaces. Yeah. Uh, these colleges and universities in the West are, I mean, they're just becoming total disasters, right? Yeah. For people of religion, they're almost yeah. becoming absolutely toxic. Yeah. Um, I mean, um, higher learning academia is becoming fundamentally almost anti-theistic. So, so at yeah. first, uh, you know, academia was theistic, right? So like Harvard and, and Yale and, uh, and Georgetown, uh, I mean, these started as Christian seminaries. Uh, education was sought for the sake of God. Uh, there was a theistic worldview, um, a, a metaphysic based upon, you know, scripture and tradition. And then academia became atheistic, where there's no God, right? A and if you believe in God, that's your business, but just keep God out of here. Mm -hmm. But now in this sort of postmodern, post-truth, you know, world, uh, academia has become anti-theistic. Which really means two things. Number one, the belief in God and practice of religion need to go, just throw it all out. Or if you insist in believing in God, uh, that's okay, but you must reject traditional religion. Mm -hmm. You must change your beliefs for the sake of hurt feelings. Otherwise, you're just, you know, patriarchal, misogynist, and homophobic, and a bigot. You know, there, there are a few schools that continue to, you know, keep it real, as it were, like Thomas Aquinas College, I think. Um, make right. their faculty and students pledge uh, that they're committed to, to the to the magisterium. Um, I think Ava Maria uh, University as well. Right there's there's Catholic schools. Of course, Zaytuna. Uh, you know, our our fundamental um, metaphysic and worldview is traditional Islam, the Sunni tradition. We teach both uh, the Islamic and Western uh, tradition as well as both canons. Right, and it's important for students to to be you know literate in both traditions i mean trying to particularly understand the roots of the western tradition it's not didn't just come about yesterday it has long roots that go back to ancient greece and and christianity and judaism and the renaissance the enlightenment and it goes on and on this story but there are complex roots that feed in very much in a very clear ways to uh the zeitgeist that we experience today the zeitgeist we have didn't just pop out of nowhere and it's not natural it's not the uh, the universal natural state of affairs the world should be. It's recent, it's very culturally and historically specific to a particular part of the world, particular historical context, 
a particular philosophical tradition as well, which we can map out. Uh, we can understand, we can see where, where we come from and where we're going. And it's great that your college is educating people in that because it helps them to uh, negotiate and deal with these um, ideologies, which just have the force at the moment of like a force of nature when they hit people. But they're not. That they're, they're recent and they're very culturally and historically specific to California and other parts of the West. Right. Yeah. No, people need to learn the trivium. And this is mm. this is really like grammar, logic and rhetoric. Yeah, these wow. are the liberal arts, right? These yeah. are the liberal arts. And when people hear the phrase liberal arts, sometimes they get the wrong idea. They, they hear liberal and they think the Oh, I see these left wing. Oh, yeah, I see what you mean, yeah. Because it was a bad term. Arts. That means left wing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Or they hear arts and they think like underwater basket weaving, right? <laughs> so so the, word, the word liberal comes from the Latin for freedom, mm. right? So liberal arts, these are the freeing tools. These, mm. are, these are tools that free our minds. They allow us to think critically outside the box. And these are the most powerful tools that one can possibly possess. They literally move the world, right? The most influential people in history were masters of these tools. One of my teachers said the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, was the most logical human being. He was always grammatically correct, right? And he was the most rhetorically powerful person who ever lived. You know, so, so language is power. And, and, uh, and advocates of the current zeitgeist, they understand this. So if they can control our language, they can control our ideas. And I don't know if you heard about this, but Stanford University, they just released something called the, um, the, the Harmful Language Guide, right? The Harmful Language Guide. So at, at Stanford University, it's harmful apparently now to say the word American. You can't say the word American. You, you can't say the word immigrant, you know? You can't say like, there's an expression, beating a dead horse, right? Mm -hmm. You can't say that because somehow this, sort of um, encourage people to abuse animals. You can't say landlord. You can't say manpower, right, for obvious reasons. <laughs> you can't say stupid. You can't say home. You can't say prostitute. You know, you have to say a, a person engaged in sex work. You know, we don't want to offend the prostitutes, right? And, and, and the tragic aspect uh, of this is that these freeing tools are seldom taught anymore, right, or, or people don't value them. And we should know that there's a reason for that. I mean, the elites don't want people to think for themselves, mm. right? I, I, this, I mean, those are particularly risible, laughable examples, but unfortunately it's serious given where it's coming from. But this this rot started a long time ago. I remember that the, the in the abortion debate, the, even the word fetus, for example, simply means young one in, in Latin. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't have a special... Um, it doesn't mean anything other than what it is, a, a, an unborn child. And this idea of a, of a woman being with child or expecting a child. But when it comes to abortion, suddenly you get this kind of special language, like the unwanted pregnancy, these euphemisms that desensitize you to the reality of what's being proposed, which is the killing of an unborn child. So the use of, or the other one is got collateral damage, famously, you know, during war. Oh, yeah. oh we're not killing civilians who are going to men, women, church, it's collateral damage you know, yeah. during the Vietnam yeah. War. So but we're used to creating these false words, re really, to throw us off the scent. So we're not really looking hot, straight on at reality. We can pretend it's not there and. Yeah. Um, or like, like it's, not a, it's not a baby, it's a fetus. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, fetus is Latin for baby. So yeah, exactly. It's not a baby; it's a baby, right? <laughs> but people don't know that's what fetus means. They think it's some special, different word. But it's, it's simply a euphemism, yeah, um, exactly. to, to avoid. Um, yeah. As we move on, just uh, uh, talk a little bit about the Andrew Tate conversion, and, mm. and this is ongoing in the news. I mean, he's just a, a court apparently in Romania where. Uh, he lives, uh, um, has ruled uh, that he should remain in custody for 30 days for some alleged offences. And uh, I, I saw some footage of him being taken away where he says, uh, just uh, I think one statement, this is the Matrix or the Matrix mm. is doing this or something like that. I thought mm -hmm. a very evocative thing. And of course, social media, if you look at the, the trending subjects in social media on Twitter, for example, uh, right at the top there is Matrix. And I thought, oh, there's a new Matrix film out. So I clicked on it. <laughs> The canoe, no, is all to do with Andrew Tate and the Matrix. So you, you do all these emails about, oh, the Matrix has got hold of him. And now I'm not, I'm not mocking, it, but I mean, it's a very serious thing. What's happening? But yeah. what, what's your take on his conversion as such? Uh, yeah, this was this was definitely one of the biggest events on social media. 
having to do with Islam in 2022. Yeah. You know, um, you know, I'm I'm not necessarily a fan of Andrew Tate. I don't follow him, uh, and and rather than going around quoting him, we should really be quoting the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, who's our real role model. Mm-hmm. So obviously, Andrew Tate has a lot to learn. Uh, but Tate's conversion was an interesting case study for me, right? Mm. So what was so um, what was interesting about his conversion was the reaction of many many Muslims, right? The reaction was so strange to me mm. um, from one aspect, like a theological aspect, uh, but from another aspect, given the fact that you know a type of sort of militant feminism, I think, has so permeated the minds of so many Muslims that that. It really wasn't a shock that many reacted the way they did. You know, somebody showed me uh, a tweet of some sister who actually um, conditioned her apostasy oh, yeah. upon him being welcomed as a Muslim by other Muslims. I mean, this is totally ludicrous. I mean, she literally said that if he's welcomed in our community, I will leave Islam and then deal with uh, God on the day of judgment. I mean, this is totally insane. So I think the overall lesson here is we should never question a person's Islam. Right. No matter how unlikely his conversion may seem, unless he obviously commits some clear, unambiguous act of kufr. Right. Uh, but we should never allow anyone's actions to damage our own relationship mm. with with our Lord. I mean, as Muslims, we believe in the qadr. We submit to the decree of God. Uh, so this is the point I wanted to make. I mean, it's dangerous. Let's not play around with you know takfir. Right. Anathematizing, you know, mm. other Muslims. In my mind, uh, when when people who are steeped in sin become Muslim, this is a testament to the greatness of this religion. Yes. Well, people thought it's a problem. They've always been such a terrible sinner. Therefore, he couldn't possibly become a Muslim. And I'm thinking, hang mm-hmm. on a second. Well, what, what do we have? Islam is about salvation. It's about you know rescuing people from the darkness of a previous life to uh, mm-hmm. a, a new life with God. And shouldn't we be more welcoming, uh, at least give them the benefit of the doubt and just see what happens? Yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, we believe in in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who's an, an omnipotent uh, uh, Lord of the universe who can change hearts. And, mm-hmm. and the Prophet himself, he would make dua for influential, to, uh, for influential people, uh, like in Mecca, because he knew that they had the potential to bring that same type of influence for mm-hmm. the cause of Islam. So he would send letters to kings because they were people of influence. He made dua for Umar and for Abu Jahal to become Muslim. They were people of influence. And of course, before Islam, uh, Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu was obviously very hostile to Islam and to Muslims. And he was actually resolved upon the most evil intention in the history of humanity. I mean, he was going to go kill the prophet. He literally picked up his sword and was walking to Dar al-Arkam with the intention of killing the prophet. I mean, it doesn't get any worse than that. And, And whereas Umar now, I mean, he's lying in a garden from the gardens of paradise. I mean, he was martyred while standing in the prayer niche of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, you know. So, you know, this is, um, it's, it, you know, it's a lesson for us. It's an interesting case study. I'm also reminded of the Hadith. So so late in the late Medinan period, when the idolaters broke the treaty with the Muslims, uh, the, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam had given them four months to leave the Hijaz or to face hostilities. So it was during this time, a time of war, when a companion named Osama bin Zaid was actually fighting an idolater in battle. And Osama knocked him down and was about to strike him when the man shouted, La ilaha illallah. Right? And Osama struck him anyway. Yeah. And, and the prophet was informed about this. So he summoned Osama and he said to him, did you kill a man who said, La ilaha illallah? And, and then Osama said, uh, So he said, he said, he only did that to save his life. Right? In other words, he didn't really mean it. And, and the Prophet was actually furious with him. And he said, So he said, he said, did you check inside his heart? Exactly. To verify his assumption. In other words, we don't we don't know the hearts, only Allah does. It is not our business to question anyone's shahada. Exactly, exactly. And then the Prophet kept saying to him, What are you going to do with La ilaha illallah? On the day of judgment, you know, so, so this is a serious matter. And so I think people just, we need to think, you know, more clearly. We need to try to, you know, control our emotions. Um, we should really, uh, we, we really need to stop and sort of think before we sound off. Because mm-hmm. the Prophet, peace be upon him, you know, he said, famous hadith, he said, 
He said, verily a person utters a word that he deems harmless, but it results in his falling into the depths of the hellfire, mm. right? So, you know, we have to be careful about how we speak about people, especially people who uh, are, are Muslim, you know? Yes. Yeah. So that, I think that's the lesson. No, I, I, I completely agree. I was, I was quite shocked at some of the, from one or two notable leaders in the Muslim community in the UK who spoke quite, dis, who continued to speak disparagingly about uh, Andrew Tate. Uh, um, um, and it, I was quite shocked because this, this guy is now a fellow Muslim and, you know, he, he should be treated as such rather than some, as some kind of imposter. Um, extraordinary. Um, well, perhaps finally, um, could you just give us a, a preview of your uh, forthcoming Oh, yes. uh, presentation uh, in a couple of weeks on blogging theory. I think it's scheduled for the uh, 13th of January, inshallah. Yes. yes, inshallah. Yeah, so the topic is going to be establishing the historical plausibility of an uncrucified Jesus of Nazareth, peace be upon him. So I'll be speaking specifically about the historicity of the crucifixion and its immediate aftermath from a secular standpoint. Mm -hmm. so, so the question I'll be tackling is, is it plausible just plausible from the standpoint of modern uh, scientific quote unquote history mm. by looking closely at the criteria of modern historiography to conclude that Jesus was never crucified. Mm. So if, the, if so, then the Quran's claim about the crucifixion is historically valid. You know, it may not necessarily be the most plausible, but plausible nonetheless. So, so my contention is that the historicity of the crucifixion is highly overemphasized by secular historians uh, that it's a tradition of secular history, so historians continue to endorse it. But when we look closely at the actual evidence, the historical case for the crucifixion of Jesus is not nearly as strong as we have been made to believe. Um, if there is a, a reasonable doubt that Jesus was crucified, then secular historians uh, must admit that the Quran's position is at least uh, plausible. So my claim is that I can establish that historical plausibility uh, and actually come up with a theory of the crucifixion that is in agreement uh, with the Quran. In other words, we don't need to postulate the historically implausible in order to explain how Jesus was not crucified and how he was seen after some crucifixion event. Um, of, co of course, we don't need to do this. I mean, we have many good reasons for believing in Allah and his messenger, right? Um, and if Allah and his messenger said that Jesus wasn't crucified, then we accept that. Yeah, and this yeah. is not an uncritical or blind acceptance. I mean, we're basing our acceptance, we're basing our acceptance on, on, on multiple factors. However, in this presentation, I want to specifically address the charge of secular historians and Christian polemicists that the Quran contains a historical error by denying the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. So this is one thing that like William Lane Craig and Bart Ehrman agree on. Right. Mm. So, so these two people agree, and I suspect. Yeah. yeah. So we'll look at the evidence. I mean, the, the 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 message and subtext of Paul's letters, the events of the Passion narratives of the Gospels, uh, will raise important questions. Are, are these events described in the Passion narratives of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Are they historically plausible? The Last Supper, the Midnight Trial, you know, the the person of Judas Iscariot, whose name has a really interesting meaning, uh, the Pascal Pardon. The, the attitude of Pontius Pilate, why did the women go to the tomb? Mm. So, so what does this say about the overall sort of reliability of the entire event? Another question is, is there material evidence that Jesus was crucified? Is there eyewitness testimony that Jesus was crucified? Uh, why don't we have the authentic letters of James and Peter uh, that speak of Jesus's crucifixion? Why do we only have Paul? Why, don't we, why do we only have one side uh, of the story? And is this uh, something without going into all the issues because we mustn't? But uh, this is something that people, um, many perhaps ordinary Christians, don't appreciate that the letters of Peter, for example, the one and two Peter in the New Testament, are seen by most New Testament scholars as forgeries. They're, they're yeah. simply not authentic letters by Peter. Uh, to yeah. Peter, by the way, is is uh, probably seen as the most universally uh, accepted forgery in all biblical scholarship. It's it is almost certainly not by Peter, and yet it claims to be explicitly by Peter. Mm. It says, yeah. I was there. I was an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus. Yeah. And yet that is the most universally agreed upon forgery in the entire New Testament, as far as I yeah. can well, explicitly, I always, I always say, so, you know, I, just because it claims to be honest, it doesn't mean it actually is eyewitness testimony for a whole bunch of historical and literary and other reasons, which really hold a lot of weight, I think. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems like the early Pauline Christians understood uh, from from their opponents, whoever they were, probably other Christians, uh, mm-hmm. that their narrative needed some uh, some support from you know apostolic support. So those are yeah, those are definitely questions we're going to be tackling. Is, is the crucifixion even multiply attested in historical sources? You know, is it what the earliest Christians believed? Does it fulfill the criterion of embarrassment? You know, in other words. A Christian would never invent the crucifixion of Jesus because that is just so embarrassing. Is that really true, though? Was it really embarrassing? Um, so, and at the at the end, I'll actually offer a plausible explanation as to what happened to Jesus and why certain people thought he was crucified. I'll actually take the audience so step by step wow. through the story, inshallah. Well, that's uh, absolutely really looking forward to that. I can't wait for that. Uh, really looking forward to that. That'd be uh, inshallah on the thirteenth of January. That's when we record it anyway. Um, and it'll go up in a day or two later, uh, God willing. Um, but before we close, uh, Professor Ali Atai, is there anything you want to conclude about 2022? And are you going to be bold enough? For, uh, you're gonna, will you say what you think is going to happen next year in the next 12 months? <laughs> next 12 months, inshallah, you know, people will uh, uh, um, continue to uh, become Muslim, inshallah. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's going to be um, uh, a good fallout. Is that, that even makes sense uh, from the World Cup, and I think people are going to be doing more research. There's going to be more opportunities for for Dawa. People are going to be um, contacting um, you know Muslim communities, uh, inshallah. Um, and then also, I wanted to conclude by saying to the viewers to you know support uh, your channel. Um, you're obviously doing fantastic work. I think I think most viewers know how I feel about blogging theology, and it's, it's the best channel on YouTube. <laughs> I said it many times. You know, thousands upon thousands of people, perhaps millions of people, have benefited and are benefiting uh, from your efforts, your contributions to the public discourse. Um, so, to the viewers, you know, please subscribe uh, to this channel. Consider uh, supporting Brother Paul on, on Patreon. Um, you. you know, making high uh, quality educational podcasts. This takes a lot of work and a lot of dedication. So, at the very least, I ask people to, to keep you and blogging theology in their in their prayers, inshallah. Alhamdulillah. Yeah, I'm, I'm very, I'm very, very blessed, and I'm, I'm very humbled by, by that, and, and uh, the work that I do, and I'm, I'm clear where this comes from. It comes from our Creator, um, uh, who is uh, gracious and kind, and has provided me and others with the means to, to do this work. So I'm, I'm, uh, all, all, all gratitude and thanks belong to Him alone. So, thank you. Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Ali Atai, for your uh, your review of 2022. Uh, maybe, inshallah, we'll come back this time next year and um, um, <laughs> we'll have a <laughs> and we'll see what happened in the next 12 months. So, thank you very much. Until next time, salam alaikum. Wow.